Good morning, Redemption. And happy early birthday, America. You know, it's good to be an American. And I'm thankful to be here with you guys. My name is Mark King. I'm one of your pastors. And I get the privilege of walking you through today's text. We are in 1 John chapter 2, continuing our 1 John series. If any of you guys have ever played sports before or even watched a sports movie, you've probably heard a halftime speech. And you know that they're important. But what makes a halftime speech so powerful, right? Why can Bobby Boucher in The Waterboy come up with his stuttering speech and lead the Mud Dogs to the Bourbon Bowl? You know, like what did Bill Belichick say when the Patriots were down 28 to three and came back and win the Super Bowl? Yeah, I heard a boo. I knew there was gonna be somebody. It's okay, people gotta hate the greatest, you know? I remember, there's starting controversy right off the bat. Um, but why are, why are halftime speeches so powerful? I remember being in sixth grade. We were in the state championship game for our Pop Warner team. It's really important, you guys. And we were jogging off the field, and our head coach, who was my dad, yells at us and goes, go in the end zone and go sit down. And so we're like, okay, well, we run, sit in the end zone. And he comes up to us with just like every ounce of disappointment he could muster up and goes, look at the scoreboard. I do not wanna see one of you talking. You're gonna sit here for the next 20 minutes and stare at that scoreboard, soak that in. And so we sat there and I don't think any of us had the courage to not look away from the scoreboard. So we're just staring at this thing and you may be thinking like, you guys must have really been getting beat up on. No, we were winning seven to zero. <laughs> but there's something that he knew about us. At, up until that point, we were undefeated and unscored on. And he knew you're not playing the way that you can play. You're not living into the reality of who you are. So soak this in. Remind yourself, this is who you are. Live into your true identity because you're not playing like you are. And man, let me tell you, we came out and whooped them. We won 33 to zero. And it may not be important to you, but this was like peak of my life, you know? So <laughs> this has all been downhill since then. But that's why halftime speeches are so powerful, right? They ground you. They remind you of who you are. They remind you and reroute you in your identity. And today, we're gonna be in 1 John chapter two, and this is his halftime speech. John wants the church to hear what he has to say because they've been in a rough time, and so he's desperately pleading with them and wants to give them a halftime speech. So if you would, let's pray before we get into the text. Lord, I just pray, God, that you, would, that you would speak to us, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that as I preach that you would just use me, Lord. And God, more importantly, that everybody here would hear from you. God, I pray that any way that I could get in this and distract people, that you would just 
remove that. And Lord, that you would speak to everybody what you have to say to them, God. And that you would remind them of who they are in you. And Lord, I pray that we would all desire to love you more after we leave today. Jesus, I need you. We need you. Be here. Amen. All right, so we'll be in 1 John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. Verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. John wants to give us an important reminder of who we are and the love that we have received in Christ. That is what he's getting at right here. He needs the church to hear, this is who you are, and this is what you have received through Jesus. But it begs the question, why did the church need to hear this? What was going on? Why did they need to hear this important reminder? Well, we know from our previous weeks that the church, there was a lot of confusion that was happening. There was false teaching that was happening, and the religion of Gnosticism was infiltrating the church, and it was causing people in the church to walk away from their faith. It was causing people to get in these debates and start dividing the church. There was these outside forces that wanted to come in and smash their faith. And so they were confused. They didn't know who to trust. They were confused about who they were and their relationship to God. And so John wants to center them back on who they are and the truth of Jesus and be grounded in what they had received through Christ. But why doesn't John start the letter off like this, right? Why is he telling them halfway through the letter why he's writing to them? Typically, like, if you write a letter, it's gonna be like, hey, I'm writing to you, pen pal, because of da-da-da-da-da-da. Why does he wait until halfway through the letter before he addresses why he's writing to them. What he's doing here is he's actually tracing the flow of the first two chapters, which he had been contrasting light and darkness. And what he's saying is, in this passage, you're in the light and you need to hear this. The last, the last few weeks, we've seen John giving this diagnostic test, right? He's asking them, Search your hearts. Are you in the light? Are you walking in the light or are you walking in the darkness? Are there any lights going off on your dashboard? Are there any warning signs that you need to, take it, that you need to pay attention to? He's contrasting light and dark and he's drilling in on this passage and saying, you are in the light, you are the light. And so what we see in verse 12 and 14 is that it's the bridge from chapters one and two to verses 15 and 17 that we're gonna get into and the rest of this book. This is his halftime speech. But who is he writing to? Because we see these three different categories. We see the little children, we see the fathers, 
and we see the young men. Who are these three groups of people? There's a lot of debate around this, but the most important thing that we need to know is that he's addressing the whole church. All three of these groups make up the entirety of the church, and so he's addressing the whole church. And what he wants them to hear is who they are as the family of God and that what they have received in Jesus Christ. He's reminding them of their identity. He says, you are forgiven. You know him who is from the beginning. He's talking about Jesus. You have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the devil. You know the Father, and you are strong because the word of God abides in you. He's saying, you are not like the people in verse 11 who are blinded by the darkness. You are in the light. He's saying, you do not have to live in the darkness of your shame and your sin because you are forgiven through the blood of Jesus. You are not in the dark and truth is not hidden from you, but you have been brought into the light and you know the truth which is found in Jesus. You are not enslaved to the darkness and the power of the evil one, but you have overcome it and you stand in the power and the light of God the Father. This is your identity, church. This is what he wants you to hear. This is what you have received through Jesus. He desperately wants them to hear this. It's like a grandfather grabbing his grandchildren and his kids and saying, hear this, know this, soak in this. This is what is true about who you are. He desperately wants them to hear that important reminder. The nine o'clock service is usually like when the little kids the parents who have little kids show up. And um, it, this illustration might have landed better with them. But if you have little kids, you know that in the same day, you can have the greatest time and also the most frustrating time that you've ever had. I mean, I have a daughter who's four years old and I have a son who's one and a half. And a typical day is like, we'll go out and we'll swim and we like to play Little Mermaid. You know, my daughter's Ariel, I'm King Triton, and then my son is Flounder. And so we'll hang out, we'll have fun, we'll play a game, we'll go in, we'll have a snack, it's great. They start playing with their magnet tiles. My son starts trying to help Lola, and he messes it all up, he knocks it over, so she grabs her little uh, plastic golf club and just smacks him with it. He starts crying. They start bickering and fighting all day, and then I get frustrated, I discipline them, I yell at them, and it's like, this is just chaos now. We were just having fun. Why is it so frustrating? And then we resolve it, and then dinner happens. (laughs) If you guys don't get the joke so far, it's because you don't have kids. Having a four-year-old means that every night we fight about dinner. It's like, hey, we had turkey last night. We're gonna have turkey again. I hate turkey. You just ate turkey last night. How do you hate it? I hate it now. Well, you're gonna eat this turkey. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. You're not getting up from this table. You're gonna sit here all night till you eat all your food. Well, can I just have a snack? No, you can't have a snack. I'm gonna burn every snack that we have in our cabinet until you eat all your dinner. You just say outlandish things, you know? But that's a typical day. 
it's fun, it's chaotic, it's frustrating. But before my daughter goes to sleep every night, she lays down and I sit on her bed with her and I grab her and I say, hey, Lola, look at me. Can you see my eyes? She says, yes. I say, can you tell that I see your eyes? She'll say, yes. And I tell her, do you know that I love you? Do you know that mom loves you? Do you know that Jesus loves you? I want you to rest knowing that you are loved. Now give her a kiss, put her to sleep, walk out. My wife will put her to sleep. I walk out. And then, but she needs to hear that. She needs to hear that important reminder every day that she is loved no matter what, that I love her, that Jesus loves her, that her mom loves her, and that we see her. And church, you need to hear an important reminder today. You need to hear the important reminder of what's true about who you are and the love that God has for you. You need to hear this important reminder because if we're honest, we're just, we're prone to forget it. This is why in scripture we see over and over and over again, God calling his people to remember. Remember what I have done. Make Ebenezer's, make these statues of rock that tell the story of what I have done for you. Remember who I am and my love for you. That's even why we come to corporate worship, right? We come here to remember who God is and his love for us. We need to remember that because every other second of our day outside of this hour and a half that we get to spend together and worship together we are constantly being told what to believe, how to think, and getting messages from our society over and over and over and over again. And we need that important reminder. I mean, I just, I'm like completely guilty of this, but like how many times have you prayed for something and then it gets answered, but you totally forgot that you even prayed about it? How many times did you pray for the safety of your kids and they were safe and you never thank God for keeping them safe? How many times did you pray for the safety of somebody's travel and he gets them there safe, but you never thank him for that? Because we forget that we even prayed about it. How many times did you pray, God, if you could just give me this thing so that I could worship you more, and he does, and we forget about it. We need to remember because we are so prone to forget. But we also need this important reminder because we live in confusing times, right? Like we got AI, I don't even know what that is. And I guess we have aliens now, so that's crazy. And we don't know like, is the stock market gonna crash yet? Is our economy gonna implode? What's going on? Like we just live in these confusing times. But it's not just out there, it's confusing in here. A lot of you are confused in here because you have seen somebody that you desperately love. You've seen a family member or a friend who you watched and witnessed get baptized 
walk away from their faith. Some of you are confused because you're sitting here and you don't know what your relationship with God is like. You don't know if you're saved. You're confused about your relationship with him. You may feel guilty. You may feel apathetic. But you're confused even about your relationship with God. And then some of you are just confused about, like, how do I even live faithfully in this culture? How do I live faithfully to God at my work? This is confusing. And we're confused because the messages of our society are so loud, so powerful, so persuasive, so winsome that we end up believing them. And we need to be reminded in the midst of our confusion that when the world says to you, church, when the world says to us that first, you need to love yourself, love yourself, and then once you're able to love yourself, then you can go out and you can love other people. Where Jesus will grab you and he says, no, that's not true. You need to hear that you are loved by God first. And that out of God's love for you, then you can love other people. When the world tells you, you will be fulfilled once you get that right boyfriend or that right girlfriend, or once you get married and you have that stable relationship, you will be fulfilled. But Jesus grabs you and says, no, I am the only one, the only one who could ever fulfill those deep desires that you want out of a relationship. It's only a relationship with me. When the world tells you, you need to create your identity and your body image is the only thing that matters. You need to flaunt it. You need it on Instagram. You need it on whatever. You need to present yourself and create yourself in a way that is desirable to the rest of the world. Jesus grabs you and says, no, live into the identity that I have given you. You are a new creation. Sin and shame and the evil one does not have power over you because I have given you an identity that will last forever. You do not have to live by the world's standards, but you have right standing with God the Father because of the identity that Christ has given you, amen? Like any good halftime speech, John is trying to root us and ground us and give us this important reminder of who we are. But now halftime is over. It's time to go play the game. And sometimes... It's more important about what you don't do in a game, like turn the ball over on the one yard line, than what you do in the game. And so John is going to tell us what not to do in the game. Let's pick up in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. John is saying, do not love the world. He's saying, whoever loves the world does not love the Father. And I don't know if you're like me, but man, that's huge. Like, this is a jarring text. And even just this week, 
it was convicting to me. But I think first we have to wrestle with like, what does John mean by the world, right? Like we see him use this word many times. And even in the gospel of John, same writer says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? John 3, 16. So why is it okay for God to love the world, but not for us to love the world? Does this mean that God's disobeying by loving the world? Does this mean that John is like the Gnostics where he would say the spiritual is good, but the material is bad, so we should hate this world? No, of course not. John uses this word interchangeably. The world can simply mean the earth and the people on it, like in John 3.16, or like in this case, the world means a way of life opposed to God. So that he, so he's using the world in a different way than he would in John 3.16. But that begs the question, okay, so what is the way of life that is opposed to God? What's the world? Well, look at verse 16 with me. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So we see that the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, which just makes us ask the question again, like, all right, sweet, so what does that mean? The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, these are just parallel with one another, right? They go hand in hand, and we actually get a really clear definition of what this is in Galatians 5. It says, the desires of the flesh are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And that's an exhaustive list. Essentially what he's saying is that these are our lustful desires to take from others to satisfy our selfishness. That's what the desires of the flesh is. And if we're honest, if we're truly honest, we all struggle with this. And not only that, but we actually believe like the desires of the flesh, they will satisfy us. This is why we're the most consumer-driven country in the world. No one has the stuff that we have and no one can have the type of experiences that we have. And yet, we lead the world in depression. We lead the world in imprisonment. We lead the world in anxiety. And we have the most stuff and the most opportunity for new experiences. We're like the perfect guinea pig for what John is trying to say. It's like he's looking at America and he's like, look at everything that they have. Nobody's happy. Everyone is chasing everything. And you can pick whatever you want to chase. Just pick it. You want to chase sex? You have porn on your phone. You want to hook up with somebody? There's an app for that. You want to chase money? You can go get another job. You could start a side hustle. You could cheat on your taxes. You can invest in the market. 
You want to chase entertainment? You can watch whatever you want until your eyes bleed. You want to chase food? You can go to a new restaurant every day until you eat yourself in a coma. You want to chase clothes? Instagram will give you new shoes to buy every single day. There is so much here that people think, man, if I just lived in America, I would be happy, but we're not. So why is that? Why is that? Why aren't we happy? It's because what John is saying is true. The flesh is not going to satisfy you. And we know it. We feel it. That's why when we chase these things, they leave us empty every time. Our lustful desires that we use to satisfy our selfishness will never satisfy us. But that's not the only thing that John tells us not to love. There's another part of the world that we need to contend with, and that's the pride of life. This one feels more straightforward, but is deceiving. The pride of life is just a pride of your livelihood. The pride of life is the fullness of yourself. It's stating, I don't need anybody. I'm self-sufficient. I could do this all on my own. And when you believe that, you actually prevent yourself from ever looking up to God and you start looking down on everybody else. This is actually the opposite of the poverty of spirit where Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. The pride of life is not the poor in spirit. It's the fullness of the self. And Jesus calls us to live a humble life. But pride wants to flaunt. That's the main point of pride, is to flaunt. It's to be the most important. It's to be the one that everything revolves around. And even at a deeper level than that, it's not even just the desire to be the most important. It's the desire that everybody would perceive you as the most important. That's why it's not about the neighborhood you live in. It's about people knowing what neighborhood you live in. That's why it's not about the person that you're dating. It's about how that person makes you look to others. That's why it's not about what vaca- it's not about going and relaxing on vacation. It's about people knowing where you went on vacation. If we're honest, We all love parts of the world. Even though we see it in scripture and we know it, that it's passing away, that it's transient, it won't last forever, it's not eternal, it doesn't abide in God, but we still love it. And we love it because it's in us. And I know it's in me. I mean, just a, couple, just a couple months ago, I was feeling wildly overwhelmed. I felt like I would come home and I would just be instantly annoyed with my family. And all I wanted to do was like, I just want to watch TV. I just want to be by myself. I want to watch YouTube. And I felt so annoyed and bothered by them. 
because they wanted my attention. They wanted me to be present. They wanted me to give energy that I didn't feel like I had. And so I felt, and I believed the lie that if I just watch TV and YouTube, I can escape. I don't have to be present. This is my escape. This is what the world tells me, and I believe it. And so I would do that. And I didn't have to give energy. And I believed the lie that entertainment was gonna give me rest. I really believed it. And then I would feel myself hating it because I knew I wasn't being a good dad. But then I would be at work and I felt like, man, I'm not doing enough at work. I need to do more. I need to lead more Bible studies. I need to be in more meetings. And when I think about that, I just wanted to be noticed. I wanted to be important. I wanted to be in the know. I wanted to be in the elder meetings. I wanted to feel important because I believe the lie that your identity comes from your work. And that's what matters is what you do. And if you're not validated in the things that you do, your identities crumble. And so I felt like I needed that validation. And it was just weighing on me. And I felt bad and I could tell like, man, I just like am, am captured by the things of the world. Like my heart desires it, it's in me. And so I was praying and I was like, God, like I don't, I don't wanna feel this way. I don't wanna do this. This isn't how I wanna live my life. And so I was like, what do I have to do? How do I stop doing this? And I felt like God told me, know that you are loved and love me. And all these things will be added to you. And it just felt like this weight was lifted off of my shoulders. I was like, man, I forgot about that. I'm a pastor and I forgot about that. Like I forgot that I just need to know that he loves me and he sees me and I'm important in his eyes and know that by loving him, I can love anything else, but it starts there. And I know that there's a lot of you here who feel overwhelmed, where you find yourself loving the world. And there are things in this world who have captivated your attention and your desires, and you're longing for it, and you're participating in it. And you feel like, how do I, how am I ever going to stop loving this? You know that the love and the desires of the world are in you. That's why so many of you are discontent. You're always looking for the next thing, the next place to live, the next job, the next friends. That's why we desire comfort so desperately. How can I live the most comfortable life and still follow Jesus? How can I get the next pair of shoes? Like the world is so in us and we feel it, but this is what you need to hear, church. God loves you, and because he loves you, you can love him, and that is truly, that is truly what God is after. He is after your love for him, and that's it, and that is the will of the Father. The will of the Father is he who loves him will abide forever, forever. 
And the more you're able to receive the love of God, the more you will be able to love him. And this is why John's halftime speech is reminding us of who we are and the fact that God loves us. Because he does not want us to love the world. And now there's some of you out there that are like, man, that sounds great. But how do I stop loving this thing? I go to this all the time. I go to porn all the time. How am I ever gonna stop that? How am I gonna go, how am I gonna stop wanting new clothes? How am I gonna stop wanting comfort? How am I gonna stop wanting all of these things that come from the world and that are the desires of the world? That is, this text is begging that question. How do you stop it? How do you stop loving the world? You love God. The more that you love God, the, more, the less you will love this world. It's that easy. It's like when you get broken up with. You don't stop loving your ex because you just hate them more. It's because you find somebody else who captivates your affections more and you love them. And that's what it's like with God. When you love God more, the things of the world aren't desirable. You love them less. And this is actually what repentance is. Repentance is not just turning away from your sin, but repentance is turning away from your sin and turning towards God. That's what it is. And there is a tool that I believe God has given us to uproot our desire to love the world and to grow our affections and our love for him. And that's being attentive to him and removing distractions. Because when you're attentive, when you give something your attention, when you're driving and you're on cruise control, it's easy to not be attentive. But when you have two hands on the wheel and you're, you're driving, you're way more attentive. And when you're attentive, you start to notice the things that God is doing in your life. You start to see the people that God puts in your life. You start to see the prayers that God answers in your life. You see how God provides for you. You see how God cares for you. You see his love in your life, and it builds up gratitude in you. When you're attentive to God, it brings gratitude. And when you are grateful for God, and you're grateful for the things that he does, it makes you desire him more. When somebody is so generous to you and loving to you, and you receive that, you desire that more. And out of desire comes love. If you want to grow in your love for the God and to uproot your love for the world, be attentive to God. That will, that'll bring gratitude, and gratitude will bring desire, and desire will bring love. So if you are longing to experience God's love and want to grow in your love for him, be attentive to it. And right now, I actually wanna lead us into a time where we can be attentive to God. So we're gonna take the next minute and just pray in silence and just ask God, what do you have to say to me? What is it that you want me to hear? Or take this time to pray to him but let's give our attention to God and hear his address and then I'll pray his out.
Lord, we pray we'd be able to receive your love. Holy Spirit, raise our affections for the things of Jesus and deaden our affections for the things of the world. Amen. As I was praying, um, I just want to give an invitation. If you're here and you're, you would say, hey, I don't know where I stand with Jesus. I don't know if I'm saved. I want to just invite you up and we will have a prayer team on each side of the stage that I would just encourage you, come and receive prayer. Come and bring your burdens to me and let God take that. And my desire for all of us is that we would just desire to love Jesus a little bit more today. And so I'm gonna invite you guys when you're ready to take communion. This is our reminder of God's love for us. This is Jesus' body and blood given to us so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life with God.